Thank you, Don. Good morning, Community Bible Chapel. What a joy for Kathy and I to be with you. Thank you, Bob and the elders, for allowing me the, the privilege of teaching the Word this morning. Uh, many of us are perhaps familiar with the name uh, Willow Creek Community Church in South Barrington, Illinois, pastored by Dr. Bill Hybels. Uh, it was Willow Creek that has had a tremendous influence on the church in North America. It was really Willow Creek that developed the approach and the strategy of the seeker-sensitive service that uh, now seems to become ubiquitous all across the United States. A uh, very interesting thing took place a couple of years ago. Uh, Bill Hybels and his staff engaged in a long-range look back at the 30 years of ministry to study the effectiveness of their strategy. And they published the findings. And quite frankly, they were grieved at what they discovered. In fact, at a leadership summit where hundreds of pastors that are part of the Willow Creek Association come together annually to meet with Bill... Bill made this statement, some of the stuff that we have put millions of dollars into, thinking it would really help our people grow and develop spiritually, when the data actually came back, it wasn't helping people that much. Other things that we didn't put that much money into and didn't put much staff against is the very stuff our people are crying out for. Now, having spent 30 years creating and promoting a million-dollar organization driven by programs, uh, measuring participation, convincing other church leaders all over the United States and Canada to do the same, we can understand why Bill called this research and its discovery the wake-up call of his life. He goes on to say this, We made a mistake. What we should have done when people crossed the line of faith and became Christians, we should have started telling people and teaching people that they have to take responsibility to become self-feeders. We should have gotten people, taught people how to read their Bible between service, how to do the spiritual practices much more aggressively on their own. Now, on the one hand, I appreciate the courage of Pastor Bill and his staff to do that kind of an audit on themselves and the humility to recognize that what they have done has not been very effective in helping people grow to become like Christ. What I want to say to you this morning is, don't all of us From time to time in our ministries, whether you're an Awana leader, a Sunday school teacher, one of the elders, a deacon, don't you sometimes wonder if with all that I'm doing and all the energy that I put in and the time preparing the teaching of the Word, visiting kids, working with the youth program, don't you also wonder, am I being effective? Am I accomplishing anything of eternal value and significance? If, if a 30-year audit was to be done of Community Bible Chapel and of Grace Community Church in Ramona, what would we find? And I want to suggest to you that some of us may not even want to go there. And yet, 
it's very important that we do that kind of assessment and take that kind of audit in order to make sure that we are accomplishing that which is of eternal significance. The Apostle Paul, as we will study this morning, had a brief but intense spiritual ministry in the city of Thessalonica. But because of the persecution that broke out, he was driven out of the city and he was left to wonder if he had accomplished anything. And let's look again at Acts chapter 17. This is the second missionary journey that Paul took and his associate is Silas. And we read beginning in verse 1 and I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. This would have, scholars think this may have been in the fall of 49 AD, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Wouldn't you have loved to have been in the Apostle Paul's Bible studies and to follow with him what scriptures he would have taught from the Old Testament to show these Jews that the one that they had been looking for for hundreds of years had come. What scriptures would the Apostle Paul have used? Psalm 16, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53. What other? Oh, what a rich time. And as Luke tells us in Acts, Paul taught for three Sabbaths. So that means that Paul was in Thessalonica for at least 15 days from the first Sabbath to the third. But what's very possible is that he actually taught as many as eight or nine times because the custom in first century Judaism was to have synagogue meetings on Mondays, Thursdays, and Saturdays. So he really may have had a tremendous amount of teaching that he gave to the Thessalonians. And as we read, his preaching was effective. Because as we pick up in verse 4, And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jacob, seeking to find them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Paul's effectiveness in converting some of the Jews, some of the devout Greeks, and many of the leading women of the city caused the Jews who refused to believe the evidence to become jealous and to begin a riot. As you know in your studies, Paul simply had the knack, had the gift of riot. And uh, so they collected up the rabble, And they went to the house of the man who had hosted Paul and Silas, a man named Jason. As you read, as you read here, they did not find Paul and Silas, so they dragged Jason before the city authorities. 
And their accusation against Paul was that he was preaching another king. Now, this is very important for us to understand the first letter that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. You see, what Paul must have been teaching is he must have been teaching about Jesus as king, Jesus in his coming kingdom. And the reason why this is important is when we begin to study the book, the letter of 1 Thessalonians, so much of that letter has to do with the second coming of Christ. Now, why would this accusation have been particularly effective in driving Paul and Silas out of the city? Well, it's because of the nature of the city of Thessalonica. Thessalonica was a city that had been granted the status of a free city by the Roman government, which meant that they enjoyed a significant level of self-rule and they did not have Roman soldiers garrisoned in their city policing their citizens. So that if it was true what Paul's opponents were saying, and Paul was allowed to persuade a significant number of the citizens of Thessalonica to start following the King Jesus, that would put the city in jeopardy of having its free status revoked. That's what upset the city authorities. That's what upset the mob that came and took Jason violently into their custody. When we look at verse 8, And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. So essentially what took place is the city authorities uh, required Jason to post bail which was uh, an effective way of restoring peace, but also freezing Paul and Silas out of the city of Thessalonica. Because if they came back into the city, that would be a violation of Jason's bail, and all kinds of problems would have happened. Well, as we read from Dr. Luke's account, Paul and Silas went to the city of Berea, where they had a much better experience and response to the gospel. And then Paul traveled alone to the city of Athens, where he had a ministry there, and eventually he wound up in the city of Corinth. While Paul was in Athens, Paul sent Timothy back to Thessalonica because Paul was so anxious to find out how the believers were doing in light of the persecution in which the church had been born. Paul was extremely anxious about their welfare, wondering if, in fact, the gospel ministry would survive having been born in such intense persecution. Well, when we come to the letter of 1 Thessalonians, we realize that this is what Paul is speaking of when we come to chapter 2, verse 17 of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17, he is reviewing with the Thessalonians what took place. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17. 
But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, can you hear the anguish? And But when we could bear it, couldn't stand it any longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this, For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. 1 Thessalonians is a result of Timothy's report when he came back. From Thessalonica. And I wish we could hear Paul speak these words. For the joy and the relief. I just see him. just When Timothy comes back and shares with him. They're doing well. Paul, they're doing well. They're continuing on in the Lord. Not only that, Paul. But they are known by their love. You can just see Paul. Did they do high fives back then? I don't know. But you can hear, listen how it just jumps out at us for now in verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted by you through your faith. For now we live... For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. As we pray most earnestly night and day. That we may see you face to face. And supply what is lacking in your faith. Paul, it's impossible for us to describe his elation. His joy at the report that these dear people that he spent less than a month with were going on in the Lord and standing firm. Now, Timothy's report also must have included the fact that his opponents in Thessalonica were still talking him down, were still attacking his credibility because in chapters 1 and 2, Paul deals with the purity of his motives that he brought the gospel to them not to make money. Uh, he brought the gospel to them that they might be saved. Uh, Timothy's report must also have been that the Thessalonians didn't... There were still things about the second coming of Christ that they didn't understand. And that some of the believers in that church had died. And they were upset that perhaps... Their dead brothers and sisters in Christ, their dead family members were going to miss out on the second coming of Christ because in 1 Thessalonians, Jesus, 
uh, the Apostle Paul gives us that marvelous revelation of the rapture when Christ comes for his church. There might have also, there must have been, in Timothy's report, also an indication that there were still some, some practical and moral issues uh, in which they needed instruction because Paul in chapter 4 deals with the issue of sexual purity. Uh, you might be wondering, where in the world is this sermon going? Paul, why in the world did you take us through all of this? Well, I have to admit that I actually had a sermon in search of a text. And I, Paul, or Bob, don't turn away in disgust. And... But you know what? What God has put on my heart is that Kathy and I want to be your Thessalonians. We want to be your Thessalonians. Just for this morning. We want to be a cause of joy and thanksgiving to God in your hearts this morning because of what you mean to us. How God used this church, the leaders in this church, the brothers and sisters in this church to shape us, to train us, to encourage us for ministry. We want to be your Thessalonians. Kathy and I want to say to you that we always remember you kindly for all the ways God used this fellowship to touch our lives. I want to share with you three specific ways in which Community Bible Chapel has shaped and affected our lives and is still bearing fruit. You see, it was in the fall of 1985 that the Lord led us to enroll at, at DTS and uh, after we got enrolled and settled in, we began to search for a church. And on the recommendation of a young lady that my wife had met, we were recommended to come to Community Bible Chapel. Well, we came that first Sunday. And uh, you got to keep in mind that Kathy and I come from uh, a Baptist kind of background. And we came to the open service at Community Bible Chapel, and so here we are in our first Sunday, gentleman gets up and does the welcome, that's fine, we're used to that, he sits down, and nothing. <laughs> and Kathy and I are polite people, I mean, we didn't make a scene or anything like that, but I know both of us were thinking, what in the world is this? I mean, it was time to sing three hymns, verses 1, 2, and 4. Sit down, announcements, special music while the offering is being taken. One more song, and then the preaching. And here we are sitting in a room of 150 people, and nobody is doing a thing. But, as we continued in that service, we began to very much sense that we were with a people that really loved God, really loved Christ. So we came back, came back that second week. Now, in that second week, there was the welcome, and then Bob stood up and announced that on this particular Sunday, the elders just that morning had placed a man under discipline. 
Now, I have to tell you, in terms of all church growth strategies, and in terms of bringing people into your church, that was a fairly serious violation. (laughs) And as we sat there, Bob very graciously and very clearly took the church family through Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20, if you'd like to turn there. In your Bibles, Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. And I remember very clearly Bob taking us through this passage as he explained to us what the elders had done, the process that had been pursued. That if your brother sins against you, verse 15, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. But if he listens to you, You have gained your brother, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree... On earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. The thing that struck both Kathy and I as Bob clearly and graciously walked us through is that the sorrow and the love for this brother and his family was palpable. And I'm not exaggerating. And we realized that this man's wife was there in the fellowship that day. And we were so struck that even in the difficulty of of being obedient to Scripture and exercising that discipline, it was done with sorrow and grief for this brother. Not self-righteousness, not a vindictiveness, not anger, but a deep grieving over this man's decisions. And folks, that sold us on CBC. That absolutely sold us on CBC. Because here's what I thought about as, as, as we left that service and, and uh, we're just processing things. I... I At that time in my life, I was well over 20 years in the Lord and in the church. And this thought kept going through my mind. There's no doubt in my mind that in my church or the churches that I've been in, the same sort of thing has happened, the same kind of sin has happened, and yet none of those churches have ever practiced church discipline. And so I was convinced we were at a church that was authentic, Committed not only to the study of God's Word, but obedience to His Word. And that closed it for us. And it was our joy then to serve for the next four years here at Community Bible Chapel. The second way that Community Bible Chapel really has shaped us for ministry uh, has to do with the issue of of eldership and spiritual authority in the local church. Again, I, I grew up in a loving Swedish Baptist church out on the west coast of California. But there, the pastor is considered to be the elder or the spiritual authority of the church, assisted by the deacons. 
So it wasn't until I went to Biola University that I was exposed to plural eldership and began to study 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. By the time I came to Dallas, I was convinced that plural eldership was the design of our Lord for the local church, but to me it was still theory, and it was here at CBC that I saw it in action and began to experience the outworking of plural eldership. Now, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And as you do so, let me say to you that I have become absolutely convinced that the one of the absolutely most fundamental keys to the health of a church is its leadership. And more specifically, plural eldership, where the elders understand that they are shepherds of the flock. First Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, we know that Titus 1 also teaches us about the qualifications of an elder. But Paul wrote to Timothy, the, the saying is trustworthy, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, Not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. When Grace Community Church contacted me in 1990 and we began discussions, one of the things that I emphasized to them was my belief in the spiritual authority of the elders. And they agreed with that, but when I came on and began to work with the elders, I realized that these dear men uh, were basically just administrators and not very good administrators at that. They were a part of a typical system where they were voted on every two years, half the board rotating off, half the board rotating on. Well, if you're a man coming into that kind of a system, put over an area of ministry where people have been functioning for 10 years, what are you going to do? What are you going to tell those people who have been functioning for 10 years? <laughs> and... Uh, Yeah, you might cause a little kerfuffle over there, and then you're off the board in two years, and they're still in ministry left to clean up your mess. These men, good men, but a part of a system that really hamstrung their development and maturity. So in 1995, I proposed to the church family that we redefine shepherd eldership. And in a business meeting, two of the church fathers stood up and spoke in opposition. We tabled it, decided we would come back two weeks later at the next business meeting when I think the Lord made it real clear to me that I had not done enough work to teach and to take the elders and the church family through God's Word and what it teaches about shepherd eldership. So two weeks later at that business meeting, I rescinded my previous motion. It was in 1999 that I thought we were ready, and so for the year of 1999, we studied the material by Alexander Strzok that I know you have a warm and uh, 
loving relationship with. His book on biblical eldership was our text. We took a whole year to study through it and to take the church family through it. And we studied the CBC Constitution and we adopted and customized much of what we saw in the CBC Constitution in terms of the way a man is trained, the process that he goes through in order to be confirmed as an elder. And in the year 2000, when we brought it before the church family for a vote, there was only one vote in opposition. It essentially was a non-issue. And I can say to you without exaggeration that that is the single most important step of growth at Grace Community Church in the 18 years I've been there as their pastor. And you need to know that Community Bible Chapel had a huge part in that process. I can say to you that these men are developing beautifully into shepherd elders. If I were to drop dead, and I'm praying nobody is praying for that, but if... If we didn't make it home from this trip, if we ended up on the island of Lost, and uh, Grace Community Church would go on just fine. Because these men love the body. They know they're the shepherds, the spiritual authority. Folks, you had a huge part in that. Elders, deacons, leaders of this church. There is a church in Ramona, California... Yes, there are Christians in California. There is a church that has been profoundly affected by your ministry. And you need to know that and be encouraged and understand why we always remember you kindly. There was a third formative experience here. By God's grace and the generosity of a family and community Bible chapel, money was provided that allowed me to serve part-time in ministry to the high school students here. And there was one particular Saturday that I had planned a ski trip out at Lake Ray Hubbard. But as happens here uh, in the Midwest, uh, a storm blew in the night before, and uh, when we got up on Saturday morning, it was still kind of cloudy, but it was beginning to break up, and so Kathy and I made the decision that we would go ahead and go out to the lake. We had uh, a boat out there. We had all the food. We had the day planned, and so we went out, Kathy and I and a friend of ours, and, and Mark and Valley Sellers were there, and we arrived at the lake at the appointed time, and we waited, and we waited, And finally, one high school student arrived, Rennie. So we waited a little longer. Nobody else came. And so I turned to Mark, and I said, Mark, I guess guess we'll call it a day. And Mark looked at me, and he said, why? Rennie's here. Now, I have to tell you, I was so shaped by program thinking and numbers, that it never even occurred to me to think through that situation in that way. 
And yet Mark was right on the money, and he taught me what grace looks like in ministry. So here were five adults and one high school student, and she had the day of her life. (laughs) And we had a ball. It sprinkled a little bit, so we all piled in a van and we played Pictionary, all six of us in there, fogged up the windows the whole nine yards. We went out on the lake. She didn't want to ski. She just wanted to drive around on the lake. We got out. We had a big barbecue for one student. She was queen for a day. Five adults loving on this one girl for Christ. Mark, in that experience, taught me grace. Taught me grace. What does grace look like in ministry? And, And the practical outworking of that is in... 20 years of ministry since then, I look back and realize how that set me free from so much potential frustration over turnout. It doesn't matter how many people show up. If it's one, you give them all you got. You love on them. You teach them the word. You encourage them. You give them everything. If it's a hundred, you give them everything. It doesn't matter. Grace gives, grace gives. Now, I need to tell you how that's still bearing fruit. This last year, we established a peacemaking team, a team of four people in our fellowship who are trained in biblical conflict resolution, and they're available to coach people uh, through conflict in our fellowship. And part of their responsibility is also to continue to teach peacemaking through Bible studies, home group fellowships. Well, Eric, our leader, in January, began to promote an upcoming eight-week Bible study on peacemaking. And he promoted it, promoted it well. And at the end of several weeks, one man, Troy Alcorn, signed up for the class. So at a meeting of the peacemaking team where I came in a little late, Eric says, Paul, let me ask you a question. I only had one person sign up. Should I just go ahead and cancel the class? Troy, or Eric, let me me tell you about something that happened to me when I was at Community Bible Chapel. You know, Eric taught that class to Troy. And he said to me after that, he said, we had the most fantastic time together. He and I. Troy is now understands and is so excited about biblical conflict resolution. Folks, your ministry is still bearing fruit 20 years later. 20 years later. So we want to be your Thessalonians. Kathy and I say to this dear church, we always remember you kindly because God used you profoundly in our lives, to shape and prepare us for ministry. And you know, I think I feel that because you can't hardly open up a Christian magazine or go to a conference where you feel like if you just study the Word and seek to be obedient and love people and do it God's way, like you're not cutting it. Like in California, if you don't teach in a Hawaiian shirt, how in the world are people going to get saved? If you don't preach from your palm pilot, you're not on the cutting edge of what God is blessing in the world today, in the church. 
If you don't have bowling for blessings and karate for Christ and motorcycles for missionaries and that. And what I want to say to you is who you are and what you are doing and what you have been faithful to do, at least in our lives, has borne great fruit. And so whenever you wonder, are we accomplishing anything of eternal significance as a church? When you wonder with those Awana kids that are sitting in your circle and you wonder, man, is this worth it? Is anything going to come out of this? Yes, it will. By God's grace. As it has in our own lives. I just want to leave you with Paul's benediction in the letter of 1 Thessalonians, if you'd like to read that along with me. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning with verse 12. 1 Thessalonians 5, beginning with verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself, and I'm going to change the pronouns, and yes, I know that that's a third person plural, but I'm going to change it to a first person plural. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify us completely. And may our whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls us is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen? Let me have the privilege of praying with you this morning. Father God, creator of heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, We give you praise and glory and honor and blessing this morning. Lord Jesus, you are the one through whom all things have been created, for whom all things have been created, and you are guiding all things towards their appointed end. All praise and glory and honor and praise be yours, Lord Jesus. And Lord Jesus, what a rich inheritance is ours in the saints. As you, through the Holy Spirit, Cause us to become part of your church, your body, the family of God on the earth. Lord Jesus, thank you for the reality of your love that flows into our lives and flows between us as brothers and sisters in you. Lord Jesus, thank you for Community Bible Chapel and the way in which you used it to shape 
Kathy and I, in the time that we were here. Father, I pray that you would continue to give wisdom to the elders, that you would give them grace and strength to shepherd the flock. Father, I pray that you would continue to knit the hearts of the brothers and sisters to the elders. And Father, through Community Bible Chapel, that your word would continue to bear fruit in those who are born again and those who are helped to become like Christ and to serve him. Father, I pray until the Lord Jesus comes that you would continue to give grace and strength to Community Bible Chapel, to be faithful and fruitful until Christ comes for us. I pray this in his name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. The Lord bless you. Thank you. Is that how we close the service? Okay. The Lord bless you. You're dismissed. Thank you.